Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Face-to-face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Okay. 
All right, so we're live with Maureen Littlejohn from uh, Swaziland, and we had a little bit of a technical issue there that I'm going to take full responsibility for, Maureen. We were, um, we thought we were recording, and we weren't, so the beauty of technology. Um, Maureen, what time is it where you are right now? It's 6.30 p.m. 6.30 p.m., 12.30 p.m. here. Thank you for joining us uh, just after, I suppose, your dinner hour. Um, so what's the temperature like in Swaziland? Well, it's rainy, but it's around 23 degrees Celsius, I guess. So, uh, so humid, okay. but yeah. Okay. Decent. No, no snow recently. Yeah, uh, no, haven't no, seen I... any in here. <laughs> it's been a little chilly here still uh, in Toronto and just around the area and looked like there was more snow this morning. Of course, spring started a couple days ago, but it's uh, it's really hanging on. That's for sure. I'm 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 done. I'm ready for it to be over. Maureen is a um, a journalist. She's a communication specialist. She's working on gender issues right now. Uh, I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more about that gender-based issues. And uh, I want to. Uh, she she recently had an article published in the Vancouver Sun, and the title of it is it's uh, it was commemorating International Women's Day just. A, a, a little while back. It's uh, Making International Women's Day Matter, a letter from Swaziland. So I think, Maureen, I've got a few questions I want to ask you about gender issues and gender-based violence and some of the things that you're currently dealing with. What? So does your, you know, your title, Making International Women's Day Matter, doesn't it already matter? Or is, or is that kind of a rhetorical question? Or could you talk a little bit more about that? Mm, well, no, I think for, for some people... Especially, you know, when I was thinking about myself back in Canada, um, and you're a little bit out of touch of what about what women are going through around the world, uh, you might not think it's that big a deal. You might think, um, as probably I did for a few years there at least, uh, hey, I've got it pretty good. I went to university. I got a decent paying job. Uh, you know, I had all sorts of opportunities. Uh, and I didn't really question it. I got over to Swaziland and like, wow. You know, women uh, have, they don't have the same kind of rights that we have in Canada that feels sort of almost like uh, 50 years behind where the the sort of women's fight was 50 years ago is where it's at now here. So what, Um, what, what what kind of issues would women in Swaziland be facing that say, you know, my wife isn't facing or the students that I teach, you know, these young women that I'm teaching? What, what, can you talk about some of those significant differences? Sure. Well, just even last year, women were not allo- allowed to own property. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. Um, for a long time, they've been treated as minors. So really, basically, you know, that old-fashioned attitude where you're, you're your husband's property. Um, there's lots of issues around the, the work I'm doing now, which is gender-based violence. Mm-hmm. Um course women do here do have human rights but they a lot of the rural women don't really understand what those are so they just think it's part of normal life to be beaten up so it's so it seems to me that it's it's about education to some degree well it's it's a lot about education but if you can if you don't even know what your rights are uh, within the context of a legal definition, is there a way of appealing to individuals, um, you know, some sort of uh, uh, religious ethic or, you know, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? I mean, where, where do you even begin that conversation? Oh, sure. Well, first of all, there are many NGOs here, um, and the, they all sort of have their own take and are tackling the issue in their own way. You know, some might be looking at it from a health approach. Others are from a uh, political approach. I mean, you do have to be careful politically here. Um, it's 
they sort of say it's a democracy, but it's it's really um, the king has final say. So, and it isn't a multi-party system. So, you can't really go at it in a political way like you could in in Canada. Right. You have to go at it in a more sensitive way. Some of the things we're doing with Swaga, which is the Swaziland Action Group Against Abuse, which is where I'm working, okay. is to take. Um, to take on small projects out in rural communities where you sensitize the community, you sensitize uh, some of the, the chiefs, the, the male leaders, uh, on why it would be good to have women as part of your team making decisions along with you, why it's not a threat, um, why this is the other thing. I mean, the, the Constitution was only implemented, uh, I think it was 2005. So a lot of people don't really know what's in there. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't aren't reading. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, and, you know, there's a lot of stuff to, 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 to tackle when you're looking at even just, you know, what we would consider a, a, such a basic as human rights. So I've always, I've always believed that all of these issues, extreme poverty, water and sanitation, education, health issues, abuse, uh, you know, uh, d- gender disparity, they're all interconnected in one way. Do you think, um, you know, Stephen Lewis might agree with this as well, but do you think that gender issues, gender injustice, are, are, is kind of the root? Is it, is it the root of all evil, uh, gender disparity? I guess that's the question I'm really trying to ask, and how deeply connected is, is, it, is it to all these other issues? Well, it's definitely connected. Um, I don't think it's the root of all evil because there's many types of evil in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, so, uh, but let's say um, gender disparity does bring around what I've been dealing with here, which is domestic violence, uh, murder, rape, um, just uh, emotional um, uh, battles between the sexes. Um, so I guess, I don't know, David. I mean, I was, I, it's a, it's a big one to unpack. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, um, I think it definitely does impact everything that you mentioned as far as certainly, um, the things that, that we're trying to work at in development, you know, but you have to understand how the culture is working and you can't really just sort of go in and say it's going to be like North America with uh, more of a, a, an equity. It's, it's not, it's, mm, I mean, things are progressing, but it's, it's, you have to be careful about how you move forward. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. You, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned in, in, the, in your article in the Vancouver Sun um, that you're convinced uh, that things are going to change. Tell me a bit more about that. Why, why are you convinced? It sounds, it sounds like a fairly um, difficult environment you're working in. Well, I guess two of the things that I've seen happen while I've been here, one is that the Children's Protection and Welfare Act was, well, went from a, a bill into an act, so it was made into law. We're still waiting for it to be actually implemented, but that's protection of children, which is really, I mean, it got the king's assent, which was the, you know, the final stamp of approval, and that happened last fall. So that's exciting. Right now, we're working on the sexual offenses and domestic violence bill. It's been kind of in the works for over 10 years. People have been pushing it, and there's a, been a lot of resistance. But it's now at the final stages. It's before the House of Senate, 
And um, I went with some of the Swaga representatives to the House of Senate, and um, they were talking about some what kind of amendments me some of the NGOs might want to see to it. So that to me that says they're they're going to be debating it pretty soon. And when that comes through, women will have uh, a, a much better. Well, the courts will have a, a smoother process for uh, dealing with domestic violence and sexual offenses, which they don't now. They're working on law with laws that are, some of them are over 100 years old, and some of them are just, they're just so out of date that, and the sentences are so uh, small that they, they don't really deter perpetrators. So when I see the senators being positive and, and committed, that means there's hope, and there might even be, you know, hope sooner than later as far as that being made into law. So is there? So it's been a long time coming that those in higher level positions of power will, are even regarding these laws as the the, the reasonable step forward. Um, and and I'm wondering. So there's change there. It's going to take time for that to trickle down. So is there a general disregard? Would you say? In, you know, obviously not in your your cult. Um, you know the the ethos that you're working in. You're working with women who are trying to empower women. But what's your sense, uh, you know, culturally, uh, from the people you're meeting? You're seeing a change higher level. You know, you've got this uh, buzz occurring around you. I would imagine in the group that you're working with and some of the other NGOs. But what about uh, others that you meet along the way? Is there hope? Is there reason for hope there? Well, I, I think there is. It, it is a strongly um, patriarchic society, patriarchal society. Um, so in some ways men feel threatened, you know, by women's empowerment. But there are, uh, at Swaga, we're working with a, a, a new project called Men Engage. And, we, we, you know, we all realize that there are, there are lots of good men out there. They're just silent, actually, on here in Swaziland on some of these issues. So we're trying to, to move forward on that, get the, get the men to speak up a little bit more, get them to be the role models, be the champions, mm-hmm. be the heroes. Um, yeah, so... Um, it's interesting, you know, Elizabeth Renzetti, uh, uh, I, I, the reason I know her name is because I read the article yesterday in The Globe, and she talks a great deal about bystander guilt and uh, how we can ensure that our kids ultimately have the courage to act in situations that are, you know, that are troubling. And um, she tells the story of being on a bus when she was younger in uh, her 20s in Germany, and a couple of young men started just this incredible, vile uh, stream of sexual abuse uh, towards a, a young woman on the bus and she just sat there and did absolutely nothing and and nor did anyone else in the bus uh, and she just kind of you know writes in the article that she says oh i kind of remember thinking oh somebody's going to deal with this but it, it, it just it can't be me so so there was this realization that there was something deeply uh, you know, unsettling and wrong, mortally wrong about this situation. Um, but she, she regrets not getting involved and so on, and then goes on to talk about, uh, you know, this whole idea of bystander guilt and how we stand back when we're in a, a large crowd. Do you think it has something to do with that? I mean, your article, you talk about individual women making a difference. You talk about coming together collectively, and it's the little things, and it's incremental steps, and I'm with you 100%, Maureen. But why the heck are these men staying silent? Why won't they step outside and say, hang on a second, guys, that's wrong, and here's why, and, and we gotta, we got to start making a change? Well, it's a good question. I mean, here in Swaziland... Um there is the, the the resistance 
often they often talk about tradition and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and you know, tradition here is is polygamy. Uh, tradition here is you know paying paying bride price, and you know once you pay your bride price, you have ownership. Um, so, you know, the, even I don't know. It's the men within more of the the urban situation. Um, perhaps they're the ones that are the the more progressive thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a I think there is a bit of a disconnect with rural and and urban, um, and the rural fellows. You know, I you know they they're living a different reality than than the urban. So. Um, and there's, you know, there's the education factor. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I think some of the, 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 the men in the rural situations are coming around. I know this one project we have, which is a, it's a women's participation in leadership project that we're working on with the EU COSPE uh, NGO. And some of the, the male leaders once as long as you're respectful, you go in and ask them, uh, you know, can can we come in and, and do the sensitization, start with a women's coalition. Um, we've, we've gotten actually some, some positive response. And it's, it, it's, it's those slow incremental steps, but, it, it, you know, once the men start seeing that it's not a threat, that it's not like they're losing power, it's actually you're going to gain a probably a, a better livelihood and a, and a better home environment. So... Eh, you know, <laughs> it's 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 all you know. It's interesting. You know, you're 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 right in the middle. And, and because I've studied philosophy for so many years and and worked in the international development sector, you you know, you see these issues that you just sort of think. You know, I remember I remember going to Cambodia for the first time, coming off the plane, and one of the first things I saw, my wife and I, Elizabeth, was this massive billboard with a, a white hands in handcuffs, and the the caption was "Sex with children is a crime," and. And I was, I just, you know, sarcastically turned to Elizabeth and said, really, is that right, eh? Like, I mean, you actually have to educate people about that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you actually have to. And, and so I've always been kind of really fascinated and interested in these, these ethical questions. And, and what, are, what are the foundations? So why did Rosa Parks do what she did? You know, what was it that got her going that stimulated her enough to actually uh, stand up? And that wasn't an incremental step. You know, that was, you know, I guess Gladwell would call that a tipping point, I suppose. But uh, anyway, it's a frustration of mine. It's a continued uh, fascination of mine to work through these things with my students and the reading I do and so on. But uh, any thoughts? I mean, for you, is is the silver bullet education? I think, yeah, definitely it is education. I think so. Um, you know, uh, I went to this Men Engage uh, workshop the other day, and we saw a video that had been, it was a documentary that had been made in, in Rwanda. And there was a lot of men in the room that were, you know, they're already the converted. Right. But it was interesting yeah. to watch this this video because it was about a man that probably had a very similar attitude to, to what's uh, no, the norm here, which is like, didn't want the woman to be empowered, didn't want to see any changes around the home. But then slowly, as she did become empowered and get uh, got a little livelihood going with a little side business and became, you know, just loved in the, in the community because she was also taking in orphans, he started changing. Like, mm. you could see the change <laughs> in him. And it was like... Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't exactly a Rosa Parks moment, but it was definitely um, uh, uh, you could feel a love and a communication between them as a couple. 
um, things like that that I you don't necessarily see all the time in 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 relationships here because there is that power disparity. So I think you know I, I always come back to so, the so what's in it for me thing and. Yes. and for a man like that, it's like, well, you're going to have a, a better livelihood. Your home is going to be a, a, a more harmonious and safe place for you and your wife and children. And you, you're probably going to have more abundance of food because you're working together on, on the agricultural plot. So, and maybe you'll have a little extra money to start up, you know, with some chickens and some this and that. And then you satisfies society. So, you know, it's it's not exactly Rosa Parks, but it's not like you know glacial either. Yeah, I think you know this whole idea of social entrepreneurship, and we've we've seen it even here in, in Canada in the last week. I'm, I'm sure you've heard about the CETA reworking and and how it's uh, um, the foreign. It's going to be rolled under foreign affairs and defate and so yeah. on, and big changes ahead. And of course, lots of criticism already coming out. But what's interesting to me is that that the Canadian government wants to align themselves more with you know the whole idea of public and private partnerships. So how how can we push forward Canadian interests? And you know what you're talking about is you're appealing to the men on a self-interested level, and I agree that we have to do that. And that's kind of, but it's. Uh, I, do you find it unsettling that we've got to appeal on an economic based on an economic principle to uh, to behave well, to behave morally? Does that does that make any sense? Oh. Yeah, it is unsettling for sure. But it's it's like you know you you're faced with a puzzle and you want you want to fit that puzzle together and that's the one thing that actually does make it work. You know, becomes whole. Whereas if if you're going on sort of the moral high ground, you you get people being very defensive. You get people not engaged. Um, and especially you know as a working from an NGO's point of view. Um, if, let's say for me coming from North America, nobody wants to hear from me, you know, on the moral high ground, that's just, you know, offensive. And then for Swaga working as women, there is a lot of resistance from men because it's like, well, we're against men. And it's like, no, we're right. not against men. We're, we're for people. We're for rela- positive, healthy relationships. But we get a lot of, of blowback from community about, well, you're the ones that makes our, our wives disobedient and you're the ones that are uh, ruining our children, you know, talking about their human rights. And, you know, now they won't obey us. So, wow. <laughs> you know. I have to be very careful with this, you know, this, this, uh, uh, looking at morals and what, what you believe is, is, is right. Um, can you tell me, you know, it's just, my mind is going off in a lot of different directions here, but can you tell me some of the things you've had to do to be more effective in a cross-cultural uh, setting, you know, I would consider you somebody, you know, as a journalist and as an international development uh, worker, I would consider you very sensitive. But yet, what have, what have you done uh, differently? How have you grown uh, to be more sensitive cross-culturally? Well, rather than getting angry, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's pretty funny. I, <laughs> I'm trying to listen and not speak before I get the full, the full comprehension of what's going on. Um, you know, and I, and I, as we've just discussed, I could get very angry about, about how I'm seeing men treat women. Um, but, and I do get called by the media all the time, all the time to make comments. And I, I'm, I have to pedal backwards and say, uh, wait a minute, I, I need to get the full picture here. Um, and, you know, in some cases, perhaps, you know, the man has been threatened or whatever. So let's look at this as a bigger picture and 
often it's something more about like, you know, financial uh, instability or weird pressure from other family members. There's, there's so many things that I have to look at rather than just going in with that sort of those blinders on saying, well, a man is bigger. He's beating a woman. That's just so wrong. Right. It is wrong. But right. You have to look at the bigger picture. So, so this whole idea of listening, I think that's, I think that's great. Um, what, how have you experienced any of this, uh, this gender disparity personally, since you've been in Swaziland? Hmm. Well, actually, most of <laughs> most of my interactions with with Swazi men have been wonderful. So, oh, good. Um, you know, it's very interesting. And I and I go into work and I say, you guys, I don't understand this. How can the men that we're dealing with, you know, or our our survivor clients, be dealing with these Swazi men? I I don't see them. I don't. So you know, um, <laughs> but once again, I'm living. I'm am living in more of a of a urban situation. Um, I am not living on a homestead and, and I am not a target. So, you know, it's, hmm. <laughs> personally, I think it's more just dealing with the stories, dealing with the survivors that come in, dealing with the little children that come in, trying to understand, dealing with the men that come in too, that have been, um, you know, per, they call it like there's financial abuse that goes on here because people, mm-hmm. uh, spouse dies, uh, somebody, the rest of the family might come in and completely clear the house and then the man is left there. And so there's, there's all sorts of things. Um, there's all sorts of things that I, I guess I have connected to. Oh, I think it's interesting. Yeah. You talk, you talk, you talk about the, you know, about the stories. I mean, whether or not uh, certain things actually happen, you still have to, uh, and whether or not certain things are actually true, you can't really get hung up on the facts. You've got to be dealing with what's in front of you at the time. So the whole idea of listening, I think, sounds sounds like, I mean, just so applicable in so many different situations. It seems to me that so many of ex, you know, expat uh, development workers don't listen. You know, we've we've got the solutions, we've got the answers, we've done the research, we've written the books, we have the PowerPoint, and so on. And I think that's uh, that's deeply deeply problematic. Hey, um, could you help me out uh, with with the difference between the notion of gender equality and gender justice? Gender justice seems to be uh, an issue uh, that we see tabled a lot more often. Uh, it's certainly a phrase that I hear more often. It's a phrase that I use more often. I'm not even sure I I know what the actual distinction is. I wondered if you could unpack that for me. Well, that's a good question because I, I need someone to explain it to me too. I think of of there's the gender equality and then there's the gender equity, which is pretty clear. I mean, that's because the sexes are not cannot be equal in all ways because just physically we're not. Um, equity, of course, is is putting us on an even uh, playing field. Um, gender justice. I mean, I was trying. I've been trying to to pull that apart myself. I mean, is that just injustices that have occurred because of gender, you know, and that could be male or female. What I, I, David, I, I need some help with that. Well, one. I, I wonder, I mean, I think part of it is that, you know, are we, are we incorporating everyone in this? You know, are we, are we looking at transgender as well? So I think, I think that's partially what gender justice is all about, but I think it, I think it's, there's something there that's a little more, uh, I think, comprehensive. I do like the phrase gender justice much more. And I think uh, when it comes down to these issues, sometimes it really is about language. So, you know, for instance, Jeffrey Sachs wrote The End of Poverty. Well, I think he should have written The End of Extreme Poverty. I think that would have been a more appropriate and 
frankly satisfying title for all of us. Um, I think ending poverty is is going to be very very difficult, but I think ending extreme poverty is something we can you know we can aspire towards. So so yeah, I mean it's it's certainly something that we can uh, pursue a little more as far as uh, clarity goes in our in our own lives. But I think the idea of justice is you know for me anyway it's it's more comprehensive, it's more holistic, and it's also looking at uh, everyone. It's not just necessarily you know polarizing it and saying we've got men we've got women you know so we're we're, right. we're being a little more i guess for me it's about being a little more inclusive for sure for sure and it, i guess it's also looking at injustice right i right. mean it's like right. correcting injustices so if we look at it from that point of view and that's the same as you know using the word human rather than you know getting us all divided into a million different uh, gender specialties <laughs> as it were you know let's let's look at at justice and and creating a a more equitable situation for all of us. So um, don't don't worry about it at all. I can hear the dog barking in the background. But what's really fascinating is I think I can hear a very large cricket. Um, as I know. Well. I am, yes, I'm outside. There's yeah. crickets. I just a toad hopping by. Yeah, and there's the neighbors doubling. So <laughs> you got it. I mean, let's just take a moment here to marvel at technology. For all my complaining and whining about the internet of how, about how it never works, I think it's pretty incredible that we've had a 25 minute conversation, pretty much uninterrupted so far, other than a few crickets, a toad, and a dog. It's uh, it's it's pretty amazing. It is. Um, so so so. You know, uh, you've spent most of your time in the West. Um, you've done a fair bit of traveling and a fair bit of work in this field, um, writing about other people and other issues. How far do you think we've come, you know, with respect to closing the gender gap and, and, and maybe even, you know, big questions, I know. But, you know, how, how far do we have to go? I mean, sometimes I think we're miles, miles ahead. And then every now and then you hear certain stories or, you know, you go to a, you go to a, a dinner gathering or a party and you hear folks speaking about things in a particular way and you say, wow, I... Didn't we give that up a long time ago? <laughs> yes, I agree. And I've been thinking about it a lot since I've been here because, you know, as we were mentioning earlier, sometimes you can just sort of take your own rights for granted and you can take your own opportunities for granted. Um, but, you know, I, I look around here and I, and I see things that were perhaps commonplace 50 years ago in, in Canada and the U.S., but then I also think, well, you know, we also have a, a dearth of female politicians. We have, every time I would look at this, and this was even just before I left, which was around eight months ago, looking in the newspaper and looking at, uh, you know, those pictures of C CEOs, um, who's gotten a, a promotion or uh, a new announcement, 9.9% of the time it's males. Mm -hmm. So you're just, I'm um, just really... Thinking, yes, we have definitely made all sorts of progress because the young women now just don't have, I mean, they, they don't have to fight like, like we did in the 70s and 60s. But um, there's, there's still uh, definitely a long way to go. I was reading an article, I think, last week about an organization, and I think it's, I don't know if it's in Toronto or if it was based in New York, I'm sure there's more than one, but essentially it's, a, it's an organization on behalf of men um, getting together and saying, hang on a second here, we, we, we think the pendulum's swung a little bit too far <laughs> on, on behalf of women. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I don't think I agree with that notion. Would you say that's a fair assessment or not so much? No, I wouldn't. And I, I think, it, 
the other thing I was thinking is, you know, if, if we want to see more women in politics, if we want to see more women in top um, executive positions, there has to be more, you know, equitable sharing of the chores at home, the, the child rearing and the chores at home, because that's what actually holds a lot of women back still, you know, my friends, many included. So, um, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the other interesting thing is, and I've been meeting more and more men who are actually are interested in being stay-at-home dads or being the guy that makes dinner. My brother is a, is a fantastic chef, and he makes uh, all the meals for, for my sister-in-law and, and their three kids. So, you know, I'm seeing that. It's really positive, it, and I think it, it just, it's just, I don't know, it just makes me feel really hopeful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I think there is reason to be hopeful. I mean, I look at uh, some of the conversations that I have with my kids about some of these issues, gender issues as well, but de- development issues, ethical issues. And I think this is uh, this is where I think our hope truly lies. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't want to... Um, absolve yourself of personal responsibility and what I would call moral obligation of one kind or another and just say, oh, well, the kids are going to sort it out. But at the same time, I think that if we're raising our children and teaching them to behave in particular ways and to align themselves in, 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 with others, I guess that's the phrase, align themselves with others, I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. What... Um, uh, what what's changed about your attitude? Would you say towards gender issues since you've been there? You've been there what about six months now? Eight. Eight months. So mm. have you seen any major shifts, or do you think that you'll have to get back home and kind of feel that you know that contrast again to really have get a sense for where you've you've grown? I I I definitely would like to get home and and see how I feel with with the difference. I mean. I'm I'm sort of hammered over the head with it here with the stuff in the paper every day. It's horrendous. Like there, there was a story uh, last week about a man beating up his wife for wearing trousers, oh. and we comment on that one. You know, like stuff like that, and you just say, "Oh God!" But um, yeah, so I know I won't be faced with that when I go home. But I I do know that there's all sorts of stuff that goes on that isn't reported. Um, and then there's all sorts of stuff that, yeah, people, I don't know, you know, there's, we have, we have a, a much better system in place at home for, for women who are survivors, you know, halfway houses or shelters, that kind of thing, not halfway houses, but shelters, um, you know, where they can be safe. They don't really don't have that here. So we have, we do have a really strong system that you want, you want to see the fact that, the, you know, these women have to go into these places negated altogether so i don't know i i I know i'll feel probably the fight will go on but Mm -hmm. it won't be quite as as um extreme as it is here do you think that it might have something to do with choice uh so you mentioned the story about the woman in her trousers i mean it's tragic it's it's horrifying to think that that actually happens i know it still happens here in the west for what I would call a ridiculous issue, uh, beating up uh, somebody else. Uh, I don't know that there are any reasons uh, for doing that, actually. <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, it happens all the time, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, bar brawls are occurring nightly around the world. But but does this woman have a choice, do you think, in this particular context? I mean, you don't know the details, I'm sure. But, you know, generalizing, you know, you don't have the, the, the hostels and the places for women to go. So is she is she trapped? 
I mean, here, you know, here in Toronto, here in, in uh, the West, there are, I, I would argue, quite a few options. Uh, you know, you can call the police and for the most part, you know, you're going to get a response. You could go to a hospital. There's there's different avenues uh, for women to take here. Um, how how uh, does choice or lack thereof play into to some of the, the these stories? What what women usually do is they go back to their uh, parental homestead, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. It depends um, if a parent has remarried because one of the other one of the parents has died. Um, often the new wife will be hostile to the child coming home. You know the the woman. Um, it it really depends. Um, yeah, uh, there are. There are hospitals. We have a. There are the police do have a, a domestic violence unit. Uh, what what happens is that there really isn't. Once you've done the reporting, and it can be very humiliating for for women here, and some of them just won't even do it because the police will laugh at them. Um, you know, if and these are about serious, very serious things like rape. Mm-hmm. Um, so they end up just, you know, maybe telling a neighbor or maybe telling somebody in their community. But, um, yeah, I mean, some of it, it depends, once again, on, on the region that you're in. But the women here don't have a lot of choices. It's, it's, um, and the other thing is a lot of the women don't support each other. There's, um, and I, I think a lot, what a lot of this boils down to is just, there's not enough resources to go around for many people. So they don't want, like aunties really don't want to see, a, you know, let's say an abused child come and live with them because there isn't enough food to go around. So they, they put that child out and, you know, it's very different from how it would be in Canada. You know, if, if let's say, uh, you had a a couple and one of them died and then all, the one remarried and the the new wife doesn't want to have anything to do with the the former the, the children from the former wife and so she puts them all out and you know they're all on their own 15 whatever 16 and and they don't have any support and then they start getting abused by other people with even within the family so well and all of, and all of a sudden we're back to kind of our original comment about how everything everything really is connected. And mm. so the the causal links between, you know, gender issues and poverty and and so on, I mean, I think are are deeply held. Stephen Lewis in Race Against Time talks about it I mean he talks about it every time he speaks, I think. But but the whole idea of, of gender issues and gender injustice, uh, it seems to me are are kind of central. Um so so can I ask you uh, about you know, uh, you talk about resources, and uh, and I think I hear you talking about capacity building and so on. Are are the NGOs there that are? You know, I know UNICEF's there. I know the bigger NGOs are there. There's lots of smaller organizations like the one that you're with. Are they are they making a difference? Are they necessary to be doing the work that they're doing? It sounds to me like they are. They're doing yes. Some of them are doing great work. Some of them are heavy on the bureaucracy. <laughs> um, so you get a little bit of everything here. You get little tiny NGOs run by a couple that are trying to, you know, teach young girls about hygiene out in the rural sticks. So you get other little tiny ones that are helping uh, pay school fees. So, yes, the, the things are, are helping. 
Um, as I say, it is small incremental steps that you see mostly, but yes, they are making a difference. You do, you do see, and, and SWADA, um, we have, we've been around for, for 20 years and we're the only homegrown NGO that is doing the, the kind of counseling and, and help for survivors that's, that's here in the country. Hmm. So eight months in a pretty negative, uh, difficult uh, atmosphere. I think I can hear in the tone of your voice, it hasn't, it hasn't knocked you down, or at least it hasn't knocked you down significantly enough that you're getting out or you're backing out. I mean, you truly, you, if you believe that NGOs are still making a difference there, it seems to me you probably believe that you still are and have and are going to. You still believe in this notion of, of change and the little things. Oh, I absolutely do. And even just from uh, that very small perspective of getting the voice, the swaga voice out to the media, I, I've heard from many clients that the reason that they even know what, what we do is because of the work I've done, which is getting out there on radio and television and, and newspapers and letting people know where we are. We have a toll-free line, this kind of thing. So I've, I feel like, yeah, even the time that I've been here, it, it might not be giant changes, but I have this, the small part I've played it has probably helped quite a few people. So I do feel good about that. Yeah, and I think that's pretty important. I think I think it's more. I, I think you can even feel better than good about it. It seems to me. I mean, the more the more I uh, and I'm just to, you know to encourage and affirm the work that you're doing. I think it's incredible, and I, I really truly believe it's it's about incremental change. It's about baby steps. It's about um, you know um, doing the things that we can do, and not looking at an issue and say, oh, you know, someone else like you know Elizabeth talked about in her article in the Globe. You know, oh, gee, I know someone will take care of it. It just can't be me. Hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No incremental steps. <laughs> so thank you for um, taking the time to chat. I, uh, I really do appreciate it. Um, do you want to tell us the, the website of the organization you're working for? Oh, it's it's www.swaga.org. Thank you for your time today. And you're going to be home when, Maureen? Uh, I will be home. My mandate runs until July. So I will be home in the summer. Well, we'll look forward to chatting to you uh, when you're back, and maybe we can get you back on as a guest as well. I would love to, David. That would be great. So I just want to end with a quote from Maureen's article in the Vancouver Sun. Quote, this International Women's Day, and that's passed, by the way, folks. This International Women's Day, I urge Canadian women to reconsider the impact they can make on the push toward gender equality here and abroad. Volunteer, donate resources, lobby politicians, and stay connected with the issues. The advancement of equal rights for women is possible. It just requires taking the first step. 